The following audio is from our sermon series titled, The Whole Story, Genesis to Revelation. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. Well, hey, my name is Scott, and uh, I'm one of the pastor elders here at Harvest City. Uh, good to be a part of that elder team. And uh, uh, man, as we jump into uh, the whole story again this morning from Genesis to Revelation, if you're new with us, uh, we are literally trying to take a tour from Genesis to Revelation uh, in one calendar year. Obviously, there's a lot that we're going to miss on that journey, but uh, we are doing that because uh, the, the story from Genesis to Revelation, although it seems like it's maybe up and down and all over the place, uh, is really one story about one person and and his name is Jesus. And one thing that hopefully we've started to realize at this point in the year is that this story matters because our story uh, matters when our story is tangled up in and caught up in his story. That's, that's the way that our lives are made to work. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be jumping into some wisdom literature, but let me connect the dots, okay? So uh, as a few weeks ago, Kyle was talking in 1 Kings, and then Mike was talking in 2 Kings, and then uh, like last uh, week that I preached, we were talking about the Psalms, and uh, well, no, one of the last weeks I did, and then we were in the prophets. So we kind of been all over the place, okay? From, from this narrative of like the kingdom and the divided kingdom uh, to the Psalms and then the prophets. Well, this morning uh, we're in wisdom literature and we're hitting all of these different genres in kind of this same era uh, but the idea is all the same that there is still one story uh, it all is pointing us to Jesus and so this morning I want to uh, just call us to tune in because uh, there is I mean Jesus is wisdom personified and talks about that in the scriptures but there's only one dude that is said to be the wisest man to ever walk the earth and that's this king, Solomon, okay? And uh, he wrote uh, this book, Ecclesiastes, as kind of this like uh, wrap-up, kind of memoir, looking back, a uh, book of wisdom at the end of his life. And so when the wisest man ever to step foot on this earth, uh, right before he's about to die, uh, wants to drop some wisdom on us, I think it's probably, uh, it's probably wise for us to heed his wisdom uh, and listen up. So uh, just in case uh, Solomon uh, isn't somebody at top of mind for you, let's think about his bio here for a minute, okay? So this dude was the king of Jerusalem in probably like the pinnacle of the kingdom, okay? Like he was the king at the top. And not only was he the king, but he was like the son of David. So as this dude was sitting on the throne and, and you'd think people would be like, wow, this excuse me, this guy's awesome. Imagine with me uh, interactions that he would have with people and they'd be like, dude, I knew your dad. Like I was there when he took down Goliath, like we talked about. Or maybe like uh, one of the musicians and they're like, I was there when he was like penning um, your favorite psalm, right? Like we had these interactions together. This is who this guy is. His dad uh, was King David. And then when he was king, uh, we know from the scriptures that literally people from all over the world, leaders, uh, uh, from other countries, like the Queen of Sheba would come to King Solomon uh, to just listen to him 
and hear his wisdom, and then they would just drop huge chunks of change on him, okay? Like his storehouses got filled up with gold and silver because he was so wise. People just wanted to hear from him and get counsel from him, and then they would just like pay him a boatload of money and bring all the cool things from their countries uh, because he was so wise. This is the man that we have a chance to learn from this morning. So Uh, This morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear, because our creator God is awesome and every moment of our lives are to be lived before his face, we must be in awe of him and keep his commandments. My sermon title for this morning is Living a Life That Matters. Okay, here's the deal. Sometimes uh, we're going to be headed to Ecclesiastes. So if you want to pull out the Bible under your chair, if you want to pull that up in a Bible on your phone, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 this morning. Uh, you can just follow up uh, along up here if you want. Uh, here's the deal. At Harvest City, we believe that the Word of God is authoritative. And so we seek to, uh, even when we're reading it, uh, like to come under the Word of God. But in this, in this uh, series specifically, there's probably been multiple times uh, that we open a new book of the Bible and you're like, why this passage, Scott? Right? Like, uh, what made Psalm 73 the psalm that we picked, right? Or, well, maybe you didn't feel like this last week because Isaiah 52 and 53 is pretty dope. And all the prophets, okay, there's not a, a better passage, I don't think, that points more clearly to Jesus. But sometimes maybe you've thought, okay, why this one, Okay. And uh, I, would, I would venture to guess, if you were to read the whole book of Ecclesiastes, you'd be like, well, yeah, this is probably uh, the spot to land, okay? So if there is, my favorite books in the Bible as a preacher or a pastor are the ones that make it incredibly obvious, because I'm not necessarily the sharpest knife in the drawer, okay? And so I really like it when God cuts the chase for you. And so the reason why we preach through the Gospel of John early on as a church uh, is because at the end of the Gospel of John, it says, hey, uh, this is the main point of the whole book book okay uh it's like this is it okay and it like spells it out for you well basically Solomon does the same thing right here in Ecclesiastes 12 13 and 14 so let's read this but I just want you to hear this is his summary uh making it point blank for even a dude like me to understand he says the end of the matter all has been heard fear God and keep his commandments For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Short passage this morning. Uh, But during our time in God's word, we're going to see this morning how to live a life that matters. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about how not to live a life that matters. Uh, And then we're going to talk about how Jesus uh, lived a life that matters this morning. Because our creator God is awesome and every moment of our lives are to be lived before his face, we must be in awe of him and keep his commandments. Will you pray with me? God, I doubt there's a single person in here this morning that has gone through life thinking, man, I would love it if I could waste each and every one of these moments that I've been given, each second and each minute and each day. Uh, I think each one of us has uh, something inside of us that you have put inside of us being created in in your image uh, that longs to use our time for your glory, to, to live a life of purpose. And so, God, as we dig into that this morning, uh, I pray, Lord, that you would put specific things on our hearts and minds, that you would set us free from that, has, that which is, has distracted us from that, and that you would reorient us to live for you and your purposes this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, y'all, uh, one of my favorite things about a uh, passage like this is that it fits with uh, some other experiences I've had in life. Uh, any of y'all ever read a book about how to read books? Like, did you know that there's, there's like books out there that like teach you how to read books, okay? Uh, and you kind of had to be maybe a little bit of a nerd to wade into that into the pool because now you're reading books about reading books, okay? But I actually haven't read one, but I've had people tell me about it, okay? And uh, here's the deal. I, it's, it's hit me at a couple of different points in life uh, where it was very necessary that somebody helped me to think through how to read books. So uh, I was a freshman in college at the University of Northern Iowa, right? Like in high school, everything just came easy. Anybody have that experience? High school is easy. College, I actually had to try, okay? And uh, so uh, I'm just stepping into college, and I remember I went to this uh, study skills class. It's probably the only class I showed up to that week, to be honest, my freshman year. Uh, and uh, there's like study skills and speed reading, and I was like, oh, this is it. If I can learn how to read faster, this is going to make my life more easy and more comfortable, right? And uh, one of the things, I actually do remember things from it. That was kind of a blur season of my life. Uh, But one of the things that I remember is that they were like, you know, here's what happens in a book, especially in textbooks, right? At the beginning of the paragraph, they tell you what they're going to say. Then they say it. And then at the end, they like tell you what they said, right? And so basically, if you just went through your textbook and you read the first uh, sentence of every one of those paragraphs and and you read the first paragraph of that chapter, and the last paragraph of that chapter, you're set, right? And so uh, that's how I lived most of my college, okay? Uh, As I just would, instead of reading the textbooks, I would just read the first sentence. I just did exactly what they told me. They said it was okay. And so uh, that's how I traversed through college. And believe it or not, uh, it worked for me, but it was because I was a math major, okay? I didn't have to read a ton of textbooks. uh, So I got through college with that. I'm not telling you that that's a good strategy if you haven't been to college yet, but uh, for me, it worked out okay. The other place uh, that this strategy hit me was there was a year, y'all, and some of y'all with littles, you get this season. Okay, I took 15 hours of seminary, uh, graduate level seminary credit. I was the college pastor uh, at Parkview at the time, and we had two kiddos that were like under five years old, which means they couldn't wipe their own butts yet. They couldn't uh, like brush their own teeth yet. They couldn't even get the food all in the, in the right hole, okay, every time. And so uh, many of the moments of my days that I have now to read that are awesome, right? I didn't have those moments at home then because I was doing those things for these two up here, okay? And so uh, in that season, it was incredibly important that my reading could be efficient, okay? And in that season, this is what clicked for me, is that it wasn't just textbooks that are written that way. There's a whole genre of books that are written the way they taught me in my study skills class. It's called nonfiction, Okay? Almost every nonfiction book written out there uses the same strategy. They tell you what they mean to say, then they say it, and at the end, they summarize it for you. And so if you go into this genre, most Christian literature, which is mostly nonfiction, okay, uh, like it's the real deal. Like you go to those books, and you can like read your books for class, these graduate-level seminary classes, and I was like, yo, this works, first sentence, right? Like skim the rest of that joint and then read those summary paragraphs. Well, today I tell you all that to say, if you want to cheat the system in the book of Ecclesiastes, don't recommend that. I do not recommend that, just to be clear, with the books of the Bible. But if you wanted to, you would land on these verses at the end, and they actually do give us a really good summary of what Solomon meant to say throughout this whole book, okay? So as we dial in this morning, 
what we're going to see is that he is going to summarize for his readers what he's been trying to say throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes, and he did it in two verses here. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And there's going to be three parts to this uh, that I want to talk about this morning. But before we go much farther, I want to talk about what he doesn't mean first before we get into what he does mean. You see, anytime uh, that somebody uses a phrase like fear God, I think in our culture, first the connotations are not always right. Okay, So what Solomon is not saying here is that we should go around being scared of God the way that people in Hawkins, Indiana are scared in the Stranger Things, okay? Like we don't have to worry about what's going to happen around every corner or what God's going to do to us if we do this. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about fearing God. Fearing God is something altogether different from being scared that God will smite us. You see, in Old Testament times, to fear God was to revere God. In ancient Jewish literature, uh, to fear God was to honor God with every aspect of your life. To fear God was to respect God, to be amazed by him, and to live like he is great and good in all of his being. Harvest City, to fear God is to be in awe of God, to be blown away by who God is in the way that it changes everything else in your life. You see God is awesome, and when you see him as awesome, then the way that you see everything around you starts to change as you consider that he's in fact the one that created all these things. Or you see God as beautiful, and when it clicks, when you fear God and you see him as beautiful, now the way that you see everything else in life seems like it went from black and white to color because you're recognizing that actually everything else that I see, what I'm seeing is a glimmer of the beauty of God in and through his creation. Fearing God is like knowing that God is sovereign and then you realize that God's been giving you gifts. He's been opening doors. He's been closing doors. He's been leading and guiding your life for all of your days and everything that you've experienced and everything that you've received is technically from and through him and by him. Church, when we fear God, we know that God is awesome that he alone is God, that there's none greater than God, that no one compares to our triune God, that he is our portion and our cup. He alone is the pearl of great price, worthy of selling everything we have to get him, that his grace is amazing, that his mercy is matchless, that his love is limitless, that there's no one who can compare to God. And when you think about God like that, Sometimes it feels like your heart's going to burst outside of your chest because you can't imagine what life would be like without him. When you fear God like that, the most natural thing you could do then is obey him or keep his commandments. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. So here's the deal, Harvest City. When it comes to living a life that matters, fearing God is first and foremost. We've got to have that fervor inside of us. We've got to have that living, breathing love for God, awe and respect of him that guides all things. 
But if Solomon was to boil it down to three things about what it looks like to live a life that matters, I think he'd say this. Live like God is awesome because he is. Do what God has commanded because he created you. And understand that all of your life is live before God's face. So let's talk about this first. Live like God is awesome because he is. That's what the fear of God is. That's what we already started to get into. So if, if, this, is, uh, if this is not you, right? If you are a Christian who has been bought with a price, who literally your life has been saved from sin and death and all that would come as a result of it, then we should be in awe of God, amen? Like uh, as grace-based people, as people who have been given the grace of God, it should be our every day, every moment desire to love him and respect him and live for him in all that we're doing. But if you know yourself well and you look around at other people, you're like, well, that doesn't seem to be our day-to-day in every moment. And so if, if you're struggling to live in awe of God, then I'm going to say there's probably one of two things going on. Probably one of two things. It's, it's honestly, I think, this simple. Either you're distracted by something else or you're not seeing who he really is. Either you're distracted uh, by something else or you're not seeing God for who he really is. Because I'm going to go out there and say it. The problem isn't that God's not awesome. Like, he is awesome. He has been revealed to us as awesome. And if you've interacted with him in the gospel, you know him to be awesome. So if you're not seeing him that way or you're struggling to be in awe of God, it probably has something to do with on our end. So if you're distracted by something else... The Bible calls this idolatry, okay? This is making a good thing out to be a God thing. Instead of seeing God as awesome, you've gotten caught up as seeing the things that he's created as awesome. And uh, instead of seeing him as most beautiful or most comforting, you've seen something else that you think is beautiful and you've chased after that. Or you found a comfort in something that he created and you've just settled for that kind of comfort instead of the comfort that he offers Because those created things are just a shadow of the God that created them. You see, in order to fear God, we need to repent of honoring, respecting, and worshiping those created things and give glory to the one who deserves it. So it's either that, that we're distracted by God and that's keeping us from living in awe of him, or it's that we're not really seeing God for who he really is, okay? And I would say uh, for a lot of us in this season, this actually is probably a more profound problem because what we've gone through over the last couple of years has left each one of us, well, at least many of us, toting extra baggage into our day-to-day life. You know what I mean? It's like, well, you had this experience or you went through these circumstances, you went through this muck or this hard thing or this sinful uh, situation, and you came out on the other side uh, with some of it still on you, right? It's like you're carrying around baggage, you've got some of that muck on you from those life experiences. And so now, instead of seeing God for who he is, you're seeing him in light of your circumstances, You see, the crazy thing is, you probably think, well, it's easy for you to say that, Scott, because you don't know what I've gone through. But the truth of the matter is, God has. He sees and he knows. 
He loves you more than you could ever imagine. That's actually what verse 14 talks about. He sees and he knows. But the fact that you've gone through those difficult circumstances does not change how awesome God is. Instead, what those hard times have done to many of us is to cause us to see God in light of our circumstances instead of seeing God, who, by the way, is the light of the world and the only means by which we can see anything. You see, if we don't see God as awesome, then to be honest, it's probably because uh, we see ourselves as a bit too awesome. I think what happens oftentimes when we go through difficult circumstances is we start to uh, feel not just pity, but self-pity. And what we don't realize is that self-pity, uh, I learned this when I read Desiring God by John Piper a while ago. Okay, that was one that I actually needed those habits, okay, to read that book. That book's about this size. I need to read the first, first you, know, you know what I mean, first sentence, last paragraph, that stuff, okay? But he says in that book that self-pity is just a different form of pride. When we've gone through really hard times and we, and we kind of devolve into this place of self-pity, what happens is that we start to see ourselves larger than what we really are in light of this grand story. We start to see ourselves as more important or more deserving instead of seeing God as most important and us as getting what we deserve from him. I'm not necessarily saying that I'm saying that, that God through whatever you've gone through in this last season that you have something you deserve. I'm saying we don't need to see our lives as being deserving of anything. In, in the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that what I deserve is sin and death, but God has given me so much better than what I deserve. You see, we need to see God for who he really is if we're going to be a people that revere him and fear him the way that Solomon encourages us to. I really do believe that when we fear God, when we're in awe of him, then the spirit-empowered overflow of our hearts will be to do what God commanded, to keep our creator's commands just like Solomon said. So simply put, this keeping his commands that it talks about in verse 13 begins and ends with loving God and loving others. Y'all thought, thought about this much? I think a lot of times, why is this? That when somebody starts talking about keeping God's commandments, we go directly in our brains to our checklist of things that we need to do, or we go to, oh, I wonder what I need to do to perform in order to make God think that I am worth loving. I don't know why that is. I, I think it's probably because we live in a very performance-based, performance-oriented world. But the truth of the matter is when Solomon says keeping his commandments, when he says fear God and keep his commandments, I don't think this brother was going to some checklist of things that we had to do for God. I don't think that's probably the case. And here's why, because in the grand scheme of things, in this whole story, what we find if we were to fast forward to Jesus is that when Jesus starts talking about commandments, he says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he says the second is like it, to love others as yourself, to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and here's the deal. I'm not just superimposing the Old or New Testament onto the Old Testament. The truth of the matter is that what Jesus was drawing for, from when he said those two things, the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like it, it's to love others, 
He was drawing from Leviticus and, er, and Deuteronomy. And those things happened to be around when Solomon was writing Ecclesiastes. This is not new stuff to him. So I'm thinking when Solomon said, fear God and keep his commandments, he's thinking chiefly love God and love others. You see, this is one of my favorite things about the Bible. Sometimes it can seem like a long, dense book with so much to take in. But at the end of the matter, when the wisest man to live is summarizing how to live a life that matters, one of the three things he writes is simply keep God's commands. I'm thinking love God and love others with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You see, instead of getting caught up in the checkboxes and the performances, yes, let us know God's word. Let us be a people that understand how he has created us and, and how we are to live. But let our hearts and our minds be driven by, motivated by love right? I don't, as a dad, ever want my kids to think, oh yeah, the most important thing in my life, if I want to live a life that matters, it's I better do all the things my dad ever said. I just got to check those boxes to make him happy. No, my, my chief desire for them would be that they would love God and that they would love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if they got to step outside of the bounds of what their sinful dad said to them about how to live in order to love him, man, I want them to do that with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I sure hope that each person that they interact with would experience God's love through them as well. See, I think this is really what God is driving us toward when he says, fear God and keep his commandments. And then there's this third part of living a life that matters in this brief summary, and it's this. He says something like, understand that all of your life is lived before God's face. I know that's a, a summary of my, I'm summarizing what he says, but look at verse 14. He says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. He's like, you know, there's nothing really hidden out there. There's not going to be any secrets from God. Uh, you're really just living your life uh, before his face. He can see it all. Well, this whole idea of living before the face of God uh, first struck me uh, when we did uh, the Gospel-Centered Life Bible study a long time ago uh, in 24-7 college ministries. We've done it, actually. Uh, we've gone through this series as a church, too. Uh, but that series was written by this dude named Bob Thune, who's the lead pastor at this church called Coram Deo in Omaha. And I was like, oh, that's a creative name to name your church, right? I'm thinking, I want to plant a church someday. Like, got to come up with these really creative names of, like, how to do this stuff your church. Well, Coram Deo, literally in Greek, just means before the face of God. And so I started getting into their stuff, and I've actually met some of their pastors since then. And if you were to talk to any of their pastors about the name of their church, I'm guessing they'd probably tell you that their church's name is meant to remind people in their flock that every aspect of our life has to do with God. Similar to this passage, that there's nothing hidden from God. There are no secrets from God. He sees and he knows, so our efforts to keep sin in the dark are futile. You see, we're all going to stand before our awesome God one day. And when he judges each one of us, if left to ourselves, we're going to be found guilty of sin. That's what scripture says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are not righteous. No, not one. I think I said that wrong, but it's basically the same point. 
see the awesome thing about our awesome God is that he has sent his son Jesus to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved, and to rise from the grave so that by faith in him we could receive the gift of eternal life. Even though there's stuff that we would love to keep hidden from God because we know it's not going to look good on our resume with him. Jesus, the one who has a perfect resume, has come and lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved, and rose from the grave so that by faith in him, we could be seen as righteous in the eyes of God. And if this is true of us, then isn't it just best for us to live every aspect of our lives before his face anyway? Okay, I don't know if you think about this. Scott values efficiency like a ton, okay? I like doing things the way that it is supposed to get done, okay? I like doing things quickly and briefly with the least amount of energy to put into them to make sure that they get done the right way, okay? I do not like wasting time and energy. And when it comes to this, if we know that like nothing's gonna be hidden from God, we're gonna get judged for it all in the end anyway, then what in the world are we doing trying to hide things from this magnificent God that already sees and already knows? Doesn't it just seem like a really inefficient task? Then I'm like, man, that thing that I did this week, like behind closed doors that nobody else knows about, except for the one watching that created me. Like, I'm going to not just hide it from all those people that didn't see it and they don't know anyway. I'm going to act like I'm hiding it from the one that actually already knows and sees. This is an incredibly inefficient practice. And I get that it's shame and it's guilt and these things welling up on us inside of us that, that make us do this. But man, wouldn't it be better to just live every aspect of our lives before his face and in his presence because even if we're unaware of that reality, our God is always present no matter how hard we try to run from him, no matter how much effort we put into hiding things from him. He is already seen and he already knows because there's no one else like him. Church, if we desire to live a life that matters, Solomon makes it crystal clear here. There is no point in trying to live in the dark or keep certain aspects of our lives behind the curtain. Walk in the light. Stop trying to hide. Your finances, by the way, uh, they're a gift from God. What happens in your bedroom is supposed to be an act of worship to God. There is nothing that is private when it comes to your relationship with God. So we might as well start living all of our lives before the face of God instead of wasting our energy inefficiently trying to hide things from the one who sees and knows. Amen? So before I move on, I want to make sure that all of us understand how Solomon learned this profound truth that he succinctly stated in the final verse of Ecclesiastes, because I don't know about y'all, but uh, I have a really hard time learning from superheroes, right? Like, you know, the people that wear a cape and they look like they've got all their stuff together and you're like, oh yeah, uh, yeah, well, I know he's got a, something in the closet there somewhere. And so like, you know, I'd rather just know that so I could genuinely learn from you as a broken uh, human being, because we're all broken, you know, human beings. Uh, but uh, Solomon is not one of those superheroes, right? Like, he doesn't have a cape on. Uh, this dude actually tried it all, okay? 
Like when we, what we're about to learn about how, to li- not, how not to live a life that matters, uh, all of this stuff, when Solomon says vanity of vanities, it came because he actually, he, he cut a piece of that pie out, he tried it himself, and he was like, oh, this is not really as, you know, what, as, as chopped up to be as what, what you'd think it would be, okay? Uh, this brother, Solomon, when we are learning from him and how not to live a life that matters, okay, is like a professional eater at a buffet who's literally tried everything everything on the buffet, and at the end of it all is like, yo, you should just stick to the prime rib. That's the only thing here worth eating, okay? Like, that's really what we're stepping into when Solomon says these verses that we're focusing in on this morning. You see, some people think of wisdom, just like it says in Webster's Dictionary, it's good sense. It's putting your knowledge into action at a street level and doing the right thing, and I'm not saying that that's not wisdom. That is wisdom, But wisdom is also learning from other people's mistakes and not repeating them. You see, Scott learns a lot of wisdom by just falling flat on his face and then learning from that. But how much better and more efficient, right, if I'm a guy that values efficiency, would it be to learn from other people falling on their face and then me not actually ever falling on my face? I think this is what God's calling us to step into here through Ecclesiastes. I think we'd be missing something if we didn't also see that Solomon spent much of this book sharing how not to live a life that matters. You see, one of the most most used words in the book of Ecclesiastes is this word vanity. The book begins and ends with, right before this conclusion, with the phrase, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. If you were to read through it, you'd read that phrase over and over again. There's actually two parts, if you looked at the outline of Ecclesiastes in your study Bible, there's two parts that are called catalogs of vanities. It's like, you know, you guys are probably too young, most of you, to remember this. But it used to be in my day and age, when I was a kid, we would get these catalogs in the mail, and you could flip through them, and you can find almost anything they would sell in a store. You know, so the Sears one was ginormous because they sold everything, okay? Like, that's, that's what this is like. Solomon made some catalogs of vanity so you could slip through and see all these things in his life that he had tried on. You see, in this word vanity, it's, it's actually notoriously difficult to translate. You ask, like, ten different commentators and they tell you ten different things. But literally the word means vapor, okay? And it conjures up this picture of something fleeting and elusive with different nuances to be ascertained from each context. It's like it was there one minute and gone the next. And so on Solomon's quest to understand all things, it's as if one of the things that he realized was that he couldn't actually understand all things. And that the one who could understand it all was the one to be focused on and feared. You see, along the way, Solomon writes out a number of these vanities, and I want to make sure that we learn from his lesson here. You see, Solomon wrote somewhere, wrote in Ecclesiastes, as a book of repentance so that we could learn wisdom from his mistakes. So remember, Solomon had money. This dude had influence. This dude had power. He threw his life into his work. He had so many concubines, you couldn't count them after a while. And this man's trophy closet was probably bigger than any of us could ever dream of, all right? But when Solomon spoke of work, when Solomon spoke of his accomplishments, when Solomon spoke of earthly pleasures, and when Solomon spoke of possessions, he spoke of them all as, the phrase he would use is, under the sun. And he put them all in his catalog of vanities. 
This isn't to say that working with excellence to the glory of God or, or accomplishing great things for God's glory or experiencing great pleasure through the gifts that God's given us in life are bad things because they're not. But I think what Solomon was saying is that his earthly work, there's a whole section about vocation and work. His earthly accomplishments, the worldly pleasure that he got from his concubines, and all the worldly pleasures that he accumulated, he's saying, in some sense, they're like vapor. They're here one day and they're gone the next. You can't take them with you into eternity. So if there's one big lesson to be learned from Solomon's life, the dude at the buffet who tried it all about how not to live a life that matters, I think it's to not get so caught up in our work, to not get so caught up in our accomplishments, to not get so caught up in sex and possessions and money that they take away our focus from that which truly matters, that they start to get our honor or our respect or our awe in a way that only God deserves. Because God is the only one who is forever. And this is exactly what we see in the life of Jesus, okay? This is gonna be our final turn for this morning. Think about how many opportunities Jesus had to get caught up in the fleeting vanities of this world, y'all. Take work, for example. Multiple times, Jews tried to raise him up and make him an earthly king over the nation of Israel uh, to give them freedom from Roman rule. So many times, okay? People were like, yep, let's make this dude our king. Can you imagine if this guy was caught up in power, if, if Jesus was caught up in influence, if he just wanted to be the best that he could be in his vocational work here on earth, and somebody's like, yeah, man, like, let's do it. Like, we're all going to follow you. You can, you can be the king uh, of Israel, and we'll get out of our, you know, like, uh, our oppression from Roman rule, and everybody is going to give you all this influence and this power. But Jesus, like, I don't know, this is one of my favorite things about the gospel. He just, like, slips out in those moments. Like, all you hear is, like, Jesus, like, nope, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And, he, and it seems like he slipped away. He's, like, really good at hide and seek or something like that. He would not let them make him king in the way that they wanted him to be because Jesus didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom for many. He cared about his father. He feared, he feared God in the way of he was in awe of his father and he did what his father had him to do here in his time on earth. Or take, take money, for example, right? Uh, think about how much Jesus could have made on this fishing scheme, okay? Y'all remember that story uh, when Jesus says to one of his disciples, throw in a line and catch a fish, and, and the dude catches the fish, and in, in the mouth of that fish, like he's got this coin, and he's like, well, use that, go, take, go pay our taxes, right? Y'all can imagine, Jesus could have been rolling in the dough, okay? This guy could have just had everybody throw in their line and be like, oh, wow, there is so much money to be found in the bottom of the ocean, right? He could have been rolling in it. He could have had all the money that the world had to offer. But instead, he went through his life living like, uh, you know, a fox without a den, laying his head on rocks and like, uh, honestly, the major uh, supporter in his life that he lived off of was these women that were his disciples. Most of the money that he had in life or the meals that he ate in life, I think, came through them. You see, Jesus chose not to let money take too high of a place in his life, but he lived a supported lifestyle by the people around him. He lived a simple life 
lifestyle. Harvest City, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, he did not once give too much of his focus to the fleeting vanities of this world. Rather, he always seemed to be pulling away to spend time with his Father in prayer. John's gospel says that he only did what he saw his Father doing, actually. He only did what he saw his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise, he said. You see, Jesus didn't merely keep from making unwise decisions during his time here on earth. He literally personified wisdom. Jesus didn't just live like God was awesome. He was the awesome God who put on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus didn't just keep his Father's commandments. He completely redefined for us what it meant to keep the Father's commandments through the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus didn't just live his life before the face of God. In his time here on earth, he continued to be one with the Father and one with the Spirit the way that he had been for all of eternity. Church, Jesus Christ is the only human ever to perfectly keep the Father's commandments. And this obedience made it possible for him to be the perfect lamb who was sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. You see, apart from Jesus perfectly embodying wisdom... We wouldn't know what it looks like to live uh, a life of purpose. But more importantly, we wouldn't have the resources necessary to live it out ourselves. You see, the good news of the gospel is that through faith in Christ, our lives are hidden with God in Christ. Uh, We call that union with Christ. And this is incredibly important because through our union with Christ, we have all that we need for life and godliness. Y'all uh, probably sick of me bringing up this passage. It's one of the most important when we think about how to live the Christian life out. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So before we talk about how that uh, seeps into these three ways that we live a life of purpose, I just want to stop for a minute and just remind us all, I know that the default, the sinful default of our hearts is to hear these things, fear God, keep his commandments, live your life before the face of God, and to think, okay, I need to start doing this in me and in my strength. But the gospel says, lay your deadly doing down, stand in Jesus' feet. Or, ah, man, I just lost that. That's a little ditty that I usually get. Uh, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Okay, when we're able to really capture what it means to be united to, Christ, uh, to God in Christ, It's there that we have the power to do these things. So what I want to make sure that we get is in each one of these things, that the fact that we have all that we need for life and godliness in Jesus means that as we endeavor to live every moment in awe of our awesome God, as we endeavor to live our life before the face of God, as we endeavor to keep his commands, that actually we have the resources, not in and of ourselves, but in Christ to do those things. So if we're thinking about living in awe of God, fearing God, then what we have in Christ means that we shouldn't become more familiar with him over the course of time. Like you become more familiar with like this building, right? Like every time you step in your building, you're like, oh, in this building, you're like, oh yeah, it still does have that old green paint around the windows from the 1970s, you know? Like, uh, and it just becomes familiar to you. It doesn't throw you off that the other paint on the walls is, is nice and updated colors, but we have that around the windows, right? You're familiar with that. Well, God's infinite, 
And when we swim in the waters of union with Christ, when we are united to Christ or to God in Christ, instead of becoming more familiar with him, we should become more and more blown away by him day after day that God would save a sinner like me. That I should, I should marvel at the fact that the Holy Spirit has come to take residence in a fool who is so easily distracted by the things of this world. I should be amazed that the God of the universe would care about an individual who for the first 19 years of my life didn't have a care in the world for him. And on top of this, I must recognize that even my awe of God is a gift from him because a finite human being like me could not truly appreciate an infinite God unless he did something to awaken me to that. You see, if, all, if we have all that we need in Jesus to make our lives matter for the glory of God, this means that as we keep God's commands by loving him and loving others, that we should not and cannot strive to do this on our own strength. We've got to remember that we love because he first loved us. We've got to remember that apart from the Holy Spirit giving us power to understand the height and the length and the depth and the width of the love of God shown to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that we will never love God the way that he deserves or even begin scratching the surface of loving others the way that God loves us. Church, keeping God's commandments is less about grinding and it's more about wearing. It's not about getting it done. It's about receiving love from God like uh, your parents give you uh, a new outfit before you go back to school and then just wearing what you've received. Wearing the love of God in your interactions with him and interactions with others. And if we have all that we need in Jesus to make our lives matter to, for the glory of God, this means that as we endeavor to live all of life before the face of God, that even our awareness of God, our God awareness, that's the grace of God. You see, the good news of the gospel is that what Jesus did a couple of thousand years ago has completely changed the way that we live today. Instead of living for the fleeting vanities of this world, we can live all of life in the power and presence of God because Jesus made it possible. He sent the Holy Spirit to literally come live inside of us, to take residence in us. We don't have to hide anything from God. Not just because it's a waste of our time, but because Jesus has died for our sin. And if we're in Christ, then he's put our sin as far as the east is from the west away from us. He has blotted out our transgressions. Instead of hiding, we need only confess our sin and remember that he has done everything necessary for us to be forgiven. We cannot live out any of these wisdom principles on our own. We live all of life in union with Christ. And in him, we have all the resources necessary for wisdom available to us in Christ. You see, church, it really is true that all of history is his story. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one thing that can make our stories matter more than anything else in life. We need to get our stories tangled up in his story. And we need to remember Solomon, in all of his wisdom, really boiled it down to this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the good news of the gospel is that if you are in Christ, 
when you come before him in that judgment seat one day, you will be judged righteous, but it won't be because of something you've done. It will be because God has deemed you righteous in the person of Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So Harvest City, here's the deal. God loved us so much uh, that he gave us this sacrament to perpetually remember how much he's loved us. And so this morning, uh, we're going to talk about that as the Lord's Supper. This morning, through our celebration of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the death of Christ. These elements, the gluten-free bread, the red wine, and the white grape juice, uh, which represent the body and blood of Christ, are a visible sermon to us. They're they're the gospel in tangible form. They proclaim to us the great drama of the redemption in Christ, salvation in the present. In In the text it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, salvation in the past, we proclaim the Lord's death as we take communion, and salvation in the future until he comes. In light of such salvation, the Apostle Paul warns us, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So before we partake of this supper today, let us examine ourselves, recognizing both the gravity of our sin and the weight of Christ's glorious sacrifice. There's going to be three ways uh, that we're going to respond uh, to the Word of God preached this morning. The first is just to come up the center aisle uh, to receive the elements and spend time reflecting on what God has done for us in Christ through the Lord's Supper. Uh, The second is going to be to just stand up and sing from the bottom of your heart at the top of your lungs along with the worship team this morning. And then the third, after communion, uh, I'll be in the back. And if you just need to have somebody pray for you and step into that with you, uh, we'd love to pray over you. Will you pray with me? God, thanks for this morning. Uh, Thank you for your word and thank you for the reminder. It's not that we are unaware that we've been created with a great purpose. It's that, God, we are easily distracted people. And we do allow our circumstances to dictate sometimes what we think about you rather than letting you dictate what we think about our circumstances. And so, God, we ask that you would do a cleansing work this morning. We ask that you would help us to see you as most awesome. And then as we do that, God, would we fear you, keep your commandments, and live all of our lives in your power and your presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.